Would you stand with me as we read from the Word of God in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21? We are born Jews. We are not Gentile sinners. However, we know that a person is not made righteous by the works of the law, but rather through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We ourselves believed in Christ Jesus so that we could be made righteous by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law, because no one will be made righteous by the works of the law. But if it is discovered that we ourselves are sinners while we are trying to be made righteous in Christ, then is Christ a servant of sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild the very things that I tore down, I show that I myself am breaking the law. I died to the law through the law so that I could live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in my body, I live by faith. Indeed, by the faithfulness of God's son who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't ignore the grace of God because if we become righteous through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Paul's letter to the Galatians was um, written to a number of churches in the region of Galatia. Get it? Galatians, Galatia, um, where Paul had traveled on one of his missionary journeys. Um, But this letter, more than some of his others, seems to be a little bit more critical of his audience. Paul doesn't hold back. He doesn't really hold back any time. But specifically, it feels like in this letter to the Galatians, um, he's, he's writing this, it seems, from a place of deep frustration and deep passion. Because um, for Paul, what he's hearing about in, that's going on in Galatia seems to undermine what he is all about, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. To take us, us back in time just a little bit, the early Christian church was um, a Jewish messianic movement in Jerusalem. And its message was not just for Jews, it was for all of humanity. And so it quickly then spread beyond just Israel. By the time Paul was a missionary, there were a lot of non-Jew Christians that were following Jesus. Um, they, were, they were about the same. Um, there, were, there were quite a few non-Jews, almost as many as there were Jews. And so as humans tend to do, there begin to be these arguments and disagreements and debates that begin to happen. Um, historically, The people of God, the covenant people of God, were largely made up of one ethnic group, Israel. And as defined by God, they were set apart by the practices that they, that were commanded in this, in the Torah, Torah. Um, Things like circumcision of the males, eating kosher, observing the Sabbath. There were a list of, of rules and guidelines that they followed that made them set apart from the world around them. And there were many Jewish Christians who believed that for these non-Jewish people who are commonly called Gentiles, if you've heard that term before, um, these non-Jewish people, for them to truly become a part of the family of God, they had to obey these same laws, these same things, right? If if God's chosen people were told to do these things, then surely these people who who are now following Christ have to do these things as well. And it was missionaries from um, this group of Jewish Christians 
who were coming to the Galatian churches and preaching these ideas. Um, They're not necessarily attempting to persuade Paul's converts to abandon their faith in Jesus completely, but rather they were asserting that the appropriate next step for Gentiles who had come to trust in Jesus as their Savior, as their Messiah, is to undergo circumcision as a sign of their inclusion in God's covenant. It, it would appear as though the missionaries wanted Gentile converts um, not just to be circumcised, but to adopt this kind of full observance of Jewish law. Um, Paul was called to evangelize Gentiles, and he did so. He had done that with the, Gen- or the Galatians, um, and he had done so without requiring some of these, these laws, circumcision, um, without without following these food laws and these things that were laid out in the Torah. But these teachers have come behind him, and they are telling the Galatians that Paul had only given them kind of part of the story, and that they did, in fact, have to submit to these certain ways of doing things and keeping the law if they wanted to be part of God's plan of salvation. They were undermining Paul's teachings and demanding that non-Jewish Christians follow the same guidelines that were established hundreds of years prior for the people of Israel. And to Paul's disgust, I would say, the, these new converts were complying to these, um, to these commands. And when Paul hears of these happenings, he says, I taught you better than that, guys. Come on now. He writes this letter as his response to the Galatian people who he thought he had taught better than this. Um, And he is obviously kind of feeling heartbroken and angry and upset about the fact that they have so quickly turned to this, what he calls this false gospel. The purpose of this letter is not just to tear down the Galatians and rebuke them for what foolish people that they are, although he does do that just a little bit. Um, but his purpose in writing this is to reestablish the true gospel of Christ by providing the Galatians with sound doctrine. Get it? Anybody getting the pun of the, the series title? Thank you, Harmony. The Galatians, um, they were hearing this different kind of gospel than the one that Paul had taught them. And it was being proclaimed by these missionaries whom Paul described as agitators and troublemakers who want to pervert the gospel of Christ. These Christians in Galatia were hearing the teaching that what makes one holy is a strict observance of the rules, of the law. What makes one worthy to be in relationship with God is their obedience to the commands of God. It's about what they do or don't do. It's about what they eat or don't eat. It's about what they say or they don't say. In other words, a person is made righteous by their works. Their their standing with God is defined by their obedience of God's law. Michael Santos was your average high school kid. Um, He was a decent student. He played football. Um, He enjoyed skiing, and after graduating, he went and he worked for his family's uh, highway construction building. But then his life took a turn. When he was 21 years old, he and a friend decided to make a little extra money, and they decided to do that by making a drug deal. Um, After this, their first big sale, 
Michael decided that this was something that he wanted to maybe do some more. Um, he started getting in a little deeper, and he w- began regularly buying and selling cocaine. But he still wanted more, and so he moved from his hometown near Seattle. He moved to Miami in order to work with some different suppliers. And a couple years later, when he was 23, he was arrested by DEA agents, and he was sentenced to 45 years in prison for dealing illegal drugs. While he was in prison, Michael decided he wanted to to be better. He wanted to build a better life for himself. And he developed this plan to kind of educate himself, to build this support network once he was released, and to contribute to the good of society. And he ended up earning a bachelor's degree, a master's degree. Um, He built a website. He wrote several articles and books. He got married, and he helped other prisoners gain these skills to cope with their life in prison. And after 9,135 days, or about 25 years, Michael was released. And he had transformed his life while he was inside of the county jail. And Michael's story is this story of hope and determination and perseverance and deliberate action that shows how someone can pursue and then earn this better life, this new life, the life that they desire. And for many of us, that's a story that that kind of resonates us. I find myself getting inspired by stories like these, um, even though I I hope and I pray that I would never be in that exact situation. Um, This story is inspiring, right? On a human level, it is inspiring the fact that we can improve our life. We can build a better life. It's the reason that we make New Year's resolutions every year, right? Because we believe, uh, some of us, those of, those of us who make resolutions, it's, it's the reason we do that, because we think, I want to be better in this area of my life. I want to do things differently. I want to have this kind of life. And Michael's story of human effort and human achievement is also the story of the human condition. We all, to some extent, believe that if we try hard enough or commit fully enough or persevere consistently enough, a better life is waiting for us on the other end of that. There's even a lot of pastors um, that fall into this kind of trap when it comes to the sermons that they preach. They preach things like, take these four steps in your prayer life and you'll have more peace. Or stop doing these five things and and your marriage will improve. Or follow this 18-step plan and God will bless your year. I don't know if those are real sermons. I, I hope they're not. Um, but but that's, that's what our culture, that's what the world around us continually preaches. That it's, a, it's this idea that we hear time and time again around us and even sometimes in our Christian culture. This idea that if we work out the right combination of things or do the right things or pray the right prayers, our lives will improve. And if we try hard enough or do it right enough, that we will prosper in some way. The idea that God has laid out this playbook for us to follow so that life will be good or that we'll be better people, that when we do certain things or follow certain rules or live moral lives, that God smiles down on us and everything in life seems to just perfectly fall into place. In some way, our actions make us worthy 
or moral or right. And to all of that, Paul says, Back in the Old Testament, in the time before Jesus, the people of Israel were given these laws, these rules for living in a society and these regulations for worship. God gave his people the law for a few reasons. It was for their own good on a basic human level. I'm just going to make you watch that a little bit longer. Um, On a basic human level, it told them how to have good lives. It was also to reveal God's self to humanity, both to the people of Israel and to the nations around them. And it was to reveal humanity's need for a savior. Because if we're all honest with ourselves, there's a reason that the phrase uh, rules were meant to be broken is so popular and so well used, right? So the law was an important part of Israel's history. And there's very good reason why these people would want to continue to follow it. But in the New Testament, after, after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the followers of God were called to something greater than the law. And that something is grace. It's what the Galatian church found themselves struggling with. After receiving this gospel of grace from Paul, some had fallen into these false teachings that they should continue to rely on the law of salvation, on the works of the law of salvation. And Paul reminds them that no man, regardless of national origin, Jew or Gentile, no man or woman is righteous enough. No one is righteous enough. Regardless of what they do, they will never be enough. And that means that their strict adherence to the law needs to end. Because as Paul says in verse 16, no one will be made righteous by the works of the law. And rather, we are made righteous through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. If we follow Christ, we no longer need to try to earn anything. Our faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done earns all that we will ever need. Paul's not... not talking down and, and depreciating the law itself because he clearly believed, as we see in, in uh, Romans, that God's law is holy and righteous and good. But he is arguing against this false use of Old Testament law that made submission to the law the reason for God's acceptance. In other words, faith is the means by which righteousness is received, not the reason that righteousness is received. Faith is the means by which it is received, not the reason it is received. So what exactly does Paul mean by this word righteousness? Um, It's often also translated as uh, justification in other versions of the Bible. Generally, it means to be morally right or justifiable. But biblically, it, it means a little bit more than that. It means a restoration of this right relationship with God. This relationship that humanity had at creation, this relationship that was broken and was no longer right because of sin, and that has continued to be that way throughout history. Justification, righteousness, means that God, through Jesus Christ, has made it just as if I never sinned. Just as if I never sinned. So faith in Jesus Christ is the only way 
that our relationship with God is restored. It's not anything that we can do. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ, and that is the only way that sin is forgotten. And we know that God is an all-knowing God. So God doesn't necessarily forget, but God just does not actively remember our sin. And the only way for that to happen is through faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul's claim here that righteousness comes through Christ's work, not our own, is telling the Christians in Galatian in Galatia, this uh, math equation. Obedience does not equal justification. He is insisting that this righteousness, this right relationship with God, does not depend on any observance of the Jewish law. It doesn't depend on anything that we can, can actively pursue and do for ourselves, but it depends on God's promise and the fulfillment of that promise through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ's death has established this new covenant in which believers no longer have to become Jews. They no longer have to follow these Jewish practices or follow the outward ceremonies of the Jewish law. Not that the law is a bad thing. It, it's not completely useless now. Um, the expression, the works of the law, does not refer to any kind of defect in the law itself. Um, but these works are holy requirements, which we broken sinners, we sinful humans can never adequately live up to. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with those of us trying to follow the law. Sinful humanity. But thanks be to God, Christ has come and he has come to adequately meet those requirements. He kept the law that could not be kept even by the people to whom it was given. Jesus was born under the law. He lived it perfectly and he died to redeem those of us who break it. Jesus became that way to righteousness, that way to right relationship with God, that way to holiness, that upholding the law and doing all the right things could never be. So there's that big chunk. But then Paul takes it kind of a step further. Not only is following the works of the law making him a sinner, but if he were to return to his life under the law, then he would be rebuilding this kind of false structure that he had previously destroyed. Legalism is a, is a term that we use often to talk about strict adherence to a set of laws. And legalism fails time and time and time again to deliver us from sin. And, and as Paul implies, it actually hinders us. It holds us back from this total devotion that we are called to have as followers of Christ. This total devotion that characterizes us as Christians, as followers of Christ, is hindered if we continue to try and find salvation in something other than faith in Jesus Christ. The phrase that Paul uses here says, died to the law. It is absolute. It is final. Death. It means he no longer tries um, to live his life. He no longer lives by trying to gain righteousness in any kind of way on his own. He no longer lives by the law. He has died to the law. And therefore, the law can now place no demands on his life. Paul is seeking a way of living that pleases God, 
but he is not at all depending on his own actions for that because he has discovered, he has, he has learned, he has seen through Jesus's life, death, and resurrection that that will never work. And so he has died to the law. And when we die to the law, this old way of following a set of rules, of following a set of guidelines to save us, when we do that, we don't stay dead. The other side of death with Christ is always resurrection. It's always new life. Not new life of our own creation, but new life of Christ's creation. We participate with Christ both in the dying and in the resurrection. We live under this transformative power of Jesus Christ, not any kind of transformative power of the law. Our life and our action is defined by Christ, not by following a set of rules. And then we get to verse 20. And verse 20 is one that many of you have likely heard before. Um, it is kind of the core of Paul's message here. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me. This obviously doesn't mean that Paul no longer has any personality, because we see in his writings that he obviously has some sass to him. Um, but rather, it means that Paul's own personal interests, his own goals, his own way of living is no longer directing his life. But it is now Christ who is directing his life. It is Christ who is directing his interests and his goals. And it is Christ who empowers him in all that he does. And this begins to look like, sound like, um, a term that we use here in the Church of the Nazarene. It's a fancy churchy word. Sanctification. How many of you have heard that word before? Oh, good amount of you. Sanctification. Essentially, we could get into a longer discussion about this, but essentially sanctification is a work that God does in us to transform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. If we believe that, that Christ has died for our sins and that, that Christ is the only way to right relationship with God, then we are called to be formed into the likeness of Christ. We are called into sanctification. We are freed from our original sin and devoted entirely to God. This holy obedience of love, not of the law, is made perfect. So if these two ideas of, of just, uh, justification or righteousness and sanctification could be done on our own by following the letter of the law, then Paul says Christ's death would be pointless. Because everyone could just earn their own way. Everyone could just earn their own justification, their own righteousness, simply by obeying the best. Simply by doing the most right things. But the law that they used to follow served a kind of temporary function as a set of commands for the people of Israel to follow and to live in right relationship with God. But when Christ came, this permanent way to live in right relationship with God was established. And that is faith in Jesus Christ. So the law kind of served as this sort of scaffolding. If you've seen on the sides of buildings when they're being constructed or, or remodeled, scaffolding goes up um, and it temporarily um, assists in the building of something, in the building of something more permanent. So in the Christian life, the temporary scaffolding 
of obedience to the rights and the wrongs should give way to the more permanent, finished framework of love. So it's not what we do, but it's what Christ has already done. Our call to be the likeness of Christ is lived out in this lifelong process of sanctification. Here, it's lived out here, in the flesh, in the body, with all of our limitations, all of our weaknesses, all of our temptations. It's both leaning into the grace of Jesus Christ to save us, and it is allowing Christ to now transform our life from now until eternity. And this leads us to our song this morning um, that has a, an impressively long title, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. Um, this song was written and produced by a band called City Alight. Um, they are a music ministry from St. Paul's Church in Sydney, Australia. And uh, they come out of the Anglican tradition, which is pretty rare in terms of contemporary worship music. Um, but City of Light has been writing songs together for about nine years. They're similar to um, Elevation Worship, who we talked about last week, um, in the sense that the band, as you can tell by how many people are in this picture, the band is not a fixed group of people. Um, it's made up of kind of whoever is available at the time of writing the songs, of, of putting these songs together. Um, so in 2014... A group of 15 parishioners, 15 congregants, um, who are also songwriters, got together. They wrote 50 different songs. All of them um, focused on kind of simple music, simple lyrics that were scripturally sound. That was, that was key to these 50 songs. And then they kind of threw it through this rigorous test of pastors and musicians and lyricists. And of those 50, only 10 of them met the standards that they were looking for. And those 10 songs were recorded that year and released as their first album. Uh, It's called Yours Alone. Um, But this is kind of the standard by which this group, City Alight, writes their music. The songs that they produce have been looked over by a large group of people to make sure that they stand up to scripture. As part of a local church, they obviously first write their songs for their church, um, but they, they say that they also hope and they pray that God would use them wherever around the world um, as part of the universal capital C church. So according to City of Light, their vision is to write songs with biblically rich lyrics and simple melodies for the Christian church to sing. Sounds wonderful, right? Um, their goal is, is not to be new or hip or groundbreaking in any kind of way. Um, they don't want to do what's, what's just fashionable for the time. In their, their exact words, they say, it's probably better to be 300 years out of date than three. And I think that's beautiful. Um, their stated purpose for the lyrics and the melodies of their songs is to help fix eyes, hearts, and minds on Jesus. So as, as we take a couple of minutes to listen to today's song, um, I want us to all do just that. Fix our eyes, our hearts, our minds on Jesus. Um, You can follow along with the lyrics that are in the video on the screen or the lyric sheets that are in your bulletins. Um, But let's listen to this song, focus on the words, and fix our eyes on Jesus.
Hello? Hello? Apologies that the lyrics were a little bit behind. Um, but that's why you have lyric sheets in your bulletin. Um, so this song contains four verses that I want to take just a minute to walk through. Each one kind of contains lyrics with profound meaning for us as followers of Christ. So in verse 1, we recognize and we praise who Jesus is. A gift of grace. Redeemer. A source of joy, of righteousness, of freedom, of love, and of peace. And Jesus is the basis of our hope. So verse 1 kind of sets this foundation for our faith. Jesus Christ. The foundation of our faith. Then in verse 2, we recognize that even when, as Christ followers, life can be hard, um, we, we recognize that we are not enough for life to be easy. We are not forsaken in the darkness. Jesus is with us. We can rejoice even in our weakness. And when we are weak, he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Uh, verse 2 reminds us of our inadequacy, of our inability to be enough, and Christ's ability to be enough, Christ's sufficiency. Then in verse 3, we recognize what Christ has done for us on the cross and, and everything surrounding that, that Christ forgives us. Christ gives us a new future. Christ suffered for us. Christ overthrew death and the grave, and Christ defeated sin. Verse 3 is this thanksgiving of Jesus' sacrifices for us. And then verse 4, we resolve that Christ is our present and our future. Our every moment is spent following Jesus. Every day we desire to be renewed, to get closer to Jesus Someday we will joyfully be with him forever. And that is what our hope is grounded in Christ and Christ alone. Verse 4 kind of speaks to the way that Christ transforms our life, both now, here and now, and forevermore into eternity. And like a lot of hymns, this song has uh, no real distinct chorus, right? In a lot of other songs that we sing, we go back to this stanza of some different lines that we sing repeatedly. Um, and this one doesn't have that necessarily, but what ties each of these verses together is that last line that is repeated in each one of them. That is the title of this song, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And this line is a constant reminder throughout the song that this is not about us. It's not about our own efforts, but it is about Christ in us, Christ in me. Whatever we do accomplish, whatever we are worthy to receive, is only through Christ in us. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. That is a recognition that we do not save ourselves. As, as Paul repeated to the Galatians many times, we do not save ourselves. It is not about what we can do. It is not about what law or rules we follow to restore our relationship with God or to make our lives better or to look a certain way because that is giving ourselves far too much credit. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. And that is also a declaration that we cannot save ourselves 
and that we are only saved in as much as Christ saves us. It's a declaration that we are only good in as much as Christ is in us and a declaration that we no longer live for ourselves, but that Christ lives in us. As the worship team comes back up to lead us as we sing this song, I want to read you an excerpt from a book um, by a man that many of you have likely heard of. His name is C.S. Lewis. Um, The book is called Mere Christianity. And in it, Lewis, um, his kind of goal, his aim is to prove that to prove to um, skeptics, to doubters, that God does exist and that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem the world. And Lewis's words here in this portion that I'm going to read speak to Paul's letter to the Galatians and to this dual purpose of Christ's grace, both to save us and to transform us. Lewis's words speak to this declaration that we're going to make here in just a minute as we sing this song. He says this, Now we begin to see what it is that the New Testament is always talking about. It talks about Christians being born again. It talks about them putting on Christ, about Christ being formed in us, about our coming to have the mind of Christ. Put right out of your head the idea that these are only fancy ways of saying that Christians are to read what Christ said and try to carry it out. As a man may read what Plato or Marx said and try to carry that out. They mean something much more than that. They mean that a real person, Christ, here and now, in that very room where you are saying your prayers, is working on you. It is not a question of a good man who died 2,000 years ago. It is a living man, still as much a man as you, and still as much God as he was when he created the world, really coming and interfering with your very self, killing the old natural self in you and replacing it with the kind of self that he has. At first, it is only for moments, then for longer periods, and finally, if all goes well, turning you permanently into a different sort of thing, into a new little Christ, a being which, in its own small way, has the same kind of life as God, which shares in his power, his joy, his knowledge, and eternity. So may this song that we sing be more than just words. May it be our declaration, our, our faith, a declaration of our faith in who Jesus Christ is, not in who we are, and a prayer for God to continue to transform us, yet not I, but through Christ in me.